I'm Kotz, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the teaching pastor, and uh, today is Easter, which means we're gonna talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if you know the nature of a portable church, you know that we don't celebrate, we don't have like a service for Good Friday because we don't have this building for Friday. So we're gonna kind of combine the two together today and uh, talk about the, the significance of the death on the cross and the resurrection. Um, you know, when it comes to Easter, I think a lot of people know like they heard the word Easter, but when it comes to what does it really stand for, what does it mean, other than the egg hunt that you do and the bunny rabbit, I, I think um, we all f- sometimes forget that Easter is a, a, it's like the birth of hope, the birth of hope. And we're gonna talk about why Easter is the birth of hope. So in order to do that, we're gonna be going into do a little history lesson. We're gonna be looking at cultural context, we're gonna be looking at historical context. How many of you guys love history? Raise your hand. Okay, now look around you because everybody else who's not raising their hand, it's gonna be tough for them today. <laughs> but for those of you who raised your hand, good job. Okay, so today we're gonna be starting by looking at the first century BCE, okay? So think about it, this is before Jesus was born. And so just get an idea of the timeline, okay? This, this is where we are. We're gonna be talking about the events that happened up to zero. <laughs> what, what is that? What, is there a year zero in between 1 BC and 81? Is there, there's a, I don't know. I, I don't know, but okay, but, but we're gonna be doing countdown to that because there's a lot of important information that's gonna help you understand the, the, the crucifixion and the, the, the resurrection. So, in case you don't know where this story takes place, here's a map, because I love maps. So this is the world, and we're gonna be looking into right here and a place called Rome, perhaps you heard of it, right? Rome was the center of the world around that time because they had the strongest military, they had the biggest government, and um, around that time, the first century BCE, the, Rome was starting to ask this question, which is, should we stay a republic or should we become an empire? Stay a republic or become an empire. Republic means there's people who are being represented by the people who make the decisions and they all come together and they talk about it. Empire means there's one person who makes all the decisions because everything relies on one person. And at the time, they were having this debate going back and forth and one person, this guy right here, Julius Caesar, said, hey, I think we should have an empire and I think I should be that dude on the top, right? I should be the guy that makes all the decisions. Now, a lot of people, he had a lot of support, especially by his like military, you know, the, the people that he led, he was a military leader, right? But there's a lot of people who are against it. They're like, we like the Republic. I don't think you should be in charge. Nobody should have that much power. And in doing so, these two people named as Brutus and Cassius, they assassinated this guy, Julius Caesar, to make sure that this wouldn't happen. But as it turns out, after, before he died, he actually adopted a son. And his son's name is Octavian. This is his son, okay? And Octavian, once he found out that his dad was murdered, assassinated, he needed to avenge him. So he partnered up with another person, his name is Mark Antony, and he, they decided to go to war against the people who stood for the Republic, and they won. And so now that they won, they're like, hey, we could have an empire. So Octavian changed his name to Caesar Augustus, and he became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And you probably heard this name before. Okay, now, up till now, maybe you guys heard this story already, but there's some really interesting things that took place that's gonna help us understand the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay? So here it is. So he, 
Caesar Augustus was like, it's not just good that like one day I was just a, like Octavian and now I'm like Caesar Augustus. Like we need to have a big party. And it can't just be a party. The whole world needs to see this party. So you know what we're, we're going to do is we're going to erect a huge monument. We should have coins with my face on it. We should have statues of me plated in gold. But we also need to have a big temple that, you know, that represents how great I am. So the, he built this temple right here. This is a concept art because it's all destroyed now. This is called Temple of Mars Ulto, U-L-T-O. And he used this temple as a way of his coronation ceremony. So he's like, and it's not just good enough that we built this place, right? Because, you know, what if people don't show up to this thing, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a little parade. Yeah, you know, like, just like at Disneyland. We're going to have that Main Street electrical parade, and he's going to go through not just Main Street, but he's gonna also going to go around the other streets all the way through Fantasyland to, you know, okay, too much Disneyland. <laughs> but you guys understand, right? But like, he's like, we need to have a parade. We need to have a procession. So... He created this procession called, it's called the Triumph on Via Sacra, or Sacra, the Sacred Road. If you're wondering what that is, this is what it looks like today. This is that Via Sacra. This is where he paraded down, right? And he would start this parade from a place called the Praetorium. Praetorium, I think it's called Praetorium. Okay, this is where the guards would hang out. And that's where also where the governor would live of that local area, okay? So, so he's like, we need to have this nice parade so the entire world would know that I am now the most powerful man in the world. And not only that, they need to look at me more than just a leader of the world. They need to see me as something greater. They need to see me as a god, right? So he, he's like, yeah, we need to do everything we can to incorporate all the imageries that, that we have in our culture to let everybody know that I'm not just a man anymore. I am one of the most powerful gods in the world. Now, this idea of this parade and stuff like that was not original to Caesar Augustus. He actually, after seeing the world and all the places he's conquered, he took some of the, the, the cultural things from around the world and he incorporated it into this parade, okay? So this processional thing was actually borrowed from the Greek culture, okay? And this Greek culture, it goes like this. If you went out and won a war, then you are a celebrity. You are a general, right? You walk down this processional, and then you come to this place, and when you get to that place, um, you know, this holy place, what they do is they go to the, to, the, to the god or goddess that they worshiped. So one of the examples is this god called Dionysus, okay? Dionysus is this god who is known to have laid down his life and came back to life, okay? And this Greek statue would actually have a robe and a crown on it. And so this general would often go to this statue and the Praetorian guards would take the robe off of the statue and put it on the general. And not only that, they would take the wreath, wreath, and they'll take it off and put it on the general as a sign of victory. And in doing so, people believe that the, the divinity of the statue will be transferred over to the general and then the parade will start. <clears throat> and so once that, that transfer happened, people would worship this person. And so Caesar saw this, this thing and said, we want to incorporate that into my parade because I want that to happen to me. Now, in the Greek culture, Dionysus, that's where it started, but eventually they switched it out with Zeus because they believed that Zeus was more powerful, right? And after they make that transfer, the, the guards around him will get on their knees and say, hail, you know, in the Roman culture, he would say, hail Caesar, Lord, and God. That's what they would say. Okay, so... Going back to the Caesar story, 
So the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, will first go to the praetorium, and then he'll see the guards there. The guards will go over to the statue that was in the praetorium, they'll take the purple robe off, they'll put it on the Caesar, then they'll take the, 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 the crown off, and then put it on the Caesar's head as a way to transfer the divinity from the statue to the man. Okay, and after they do that, they'll also sometimes give him a scepter, and at that point, the guards will get on their knees and they'll say, Hail Caesar, Lord and God. And after that, they head over to the Via Sacra, which we saw earlier, this street right here. And this, and this parade originally was meant for generals. But as far as we know through history, historians, around BC, 20 BC, they stopped making it about generals, but only for imperial marches, so only for Caesars. So this is like exclusive only to like people who are being promoted as Caesar. Okay, and, and the procession went like this. First, the guards would come out to let the whole town know that whoever's coming after us is a very important person. And then after that, the Caesar would come out wearing the robe, wearing, wearing the crown, and holding a scepter. And after that, we will have this person wielding an ax. And you're like, why is he wielding an ax? You know, intimidate people? No, because the person or the thing that comes out after him is a bull. Here's a little uh, thing uh, depicting that right here. Okay, this is a sacrificial bull. This is, you know, when you deify a person, there needs to be a sacrifice, and they often used a bull for that. And as they walked down this, 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 the Via Sacra, people would shout things like, triumphe, which means triumph, triumph, right? Like, you are a powerful, majestic person, now God. And they'll say, hail Caesar, Lord and God. And they will go all the way to the Mars Temple. And after that, they will go to an even higher place called the Capitoline Hill. This is a idea what that looks like. It's a, in Rome, there's several hills. This is called Capitoline Hill. And the reason it's called Capitoline Hill is because when they were excavating the place to build this temple right here, they found this head. <laughs> yeah, it's like decapitated head, right? A head, and everything was intact, like the hair, the eyes, the skin, right? And they believed that it belonged to some hero called, um, I think it was called Tolus, I think, and that's why they call it Capitoline. Cap means head, right? Decapitate cap, right? So this place is called Capitoline Hill, literally means head, hell, hill. Head, the hill of the head, okay? So, right, and so if you wanna know what this, this is called the Temple of Jupiter. Here's a, a reconstruction of it right here. This is at a movie studio in Italy. Um, this is what it looks like. This is smaller, this is like a smaller version of what they thought it looked like. So eventually the processional will go up the hill to this Jupiter temple, and then the crowd will follow. And so if you just imagine down here, there's like a sea of people. And in the very front are the guards, it's the Caesar, but if you're in the back, you can't see any of that, right? So he will take a few steps up these steps, and he'll turn around, and then at that point, one of the guards will give him a bowl of wine. And then at that point, the Caesar will refuse the wine, and he'll pour it out on the ground as a symbol to say, I'm gonna pour myself out for this kingdom that I'm about to rule over. It's a way of showing my loyalty to the people here. And then at that point, they'll bring the bull in and the guy wielding the ax, the murder weapon, they will chop at, the, they will hack at the, the bull and the blood will spill on the ground and that was their way of saying that the deed is now done. At that point, everybody cheers, ah, this is so cool, right? And then he will go up the steps even higher so everybody in the crowd could see him and then he looks at everybody, and as a gesture to show everybody that you are my people, he will extend his hands out like this, and everybody starts going, wow, that's so cool. And as he's going up the steps, 
there's two other people who are going up the steps with him, one on his left, one on his right. This is their way of saying, we are the people who are gonna rule you, right? And usually it's like the Caesar's sons, like it's like my son's son-in-law or son, you know, somebody that's close to him that he could trust. And as he does this, the whole crowd starts up going, they start going crazy. This is what they say. They would say, hail Caesar, Lord and God. Or sometimes in the Latin, they would say, Kairos Lutera, which means you are my Lord and Savior. Now, in the story of Augustus Caesar, when he, uh, Caesar Augustus, when he became at this coronation ceremony, when he was doing this, people looked up into the sky and they saw this comet passing by. And when they saw this comet passing by, Julius Caesar was, I mean, uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus was like, let me take this opportunity to just say that right there, everybody, not planned, but that right there is actually my father, Julius Caesar, who is, he is in the form of a star and he's being sent to sit at his rightful place amongst the gods. And people look up in the skies and for Romans, you know, a symbol from the heavens was like the symbol, like that was the sign they were looking for, right? So they look up there and say, oh my goodness, you are so right. So if Julius Caesar is God, that makes you, Augustus, the son of God. So they started calling him the son of God. Okay, that's the information you need to know as we read a different story now. Now, this next story next uh, on the map Okay, this is Rome, takes place on the far east side over here in a little city called Jerusalem. Okay, and what we're gonna be reading today is a book called The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the one we're gonna read today because, I don't know if you guys know this, but there were four biographies of Jesus that was circulating in the first century. And in the first century, these stories were, were basically placed in certain regions. Like they would say this is a Johannian community, the people who were raised on the Book of John tradition. There's the Lucan community, people who grew up on the story of, that story of Jesus based on the Book of Luke. And there's a Markan community, and the Markan community was actually in Rome. The Book of Mark was written to a Christian community in Rome. So these people who are reading the Book of Mark will be familiar with everything I just told you about how the coronation of Caesar happens, right? So this is the biography of Jesus that was written to a specific group of people in Rome. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 15, starting from verse 16. It says this, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, and then Mark says, oh by the way, we're gonna call that the Praetorium. Now why would he do that? And called together the whole company of soldiers, so a bunch of soldiers coming together in a place called the Praetorium. Uh, the Praetorium. Huh, I wonder what he has in mind here, because Jerusalem has a Praetorium just like Rome does. Okay, next slide. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. It's not a nice wreath, but it's a crown of thorns. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Remember, in in the, the, the Caesar one, one version of this, they get down their knees and they hail Caesar as Lord and God. Here, they call him the king of the Jews. Next slide. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Again, in the Caesar version of the story, they all fall on their knees and they worship Caesar at this point in the story of the processional. Next. 
And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on, the, on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The guards came out first, and then the person, Jesus, came out after him. Wait a minute, this sounds kind of like the, the processional of the Caesar thing, right? Because I remember you said that the guards will come out first, and then the Caesar, oh, the guards will come out first, and then Caesar, and then the sacrificial, oh, wait, wait, there's the sacrificial animal, and then there's the, the axe, the weapon of murder. Where's the sacrificial animal? Jesus is the sacrificial animal in this story. Well, well where's the, the, the guy wielding the, 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 the instrument of death? Where's that? Next verse. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. The cross was a death instrument back then. It was like a, it was like a, a like a, an electric chair. It was like the way of killing somebody. So there's your weapon right there, right? Let's keep going. They brought Jesus to the, uh, to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Where did they take Caesar? Head hill, right? Here they take Jesus to a place called the place of the skull. Coincidence? Mark is definitely trying to say something here, right? Next verse. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh and what? He did not take it. Once again, when they don't take it and he pours it on the ground, this is Caesar's way of saying, I'm committing myself to this kingdom. I'm pouring myself out for this kingdom. And then it says, they crucified him. Crucifixion is an act of nailing somebody to the cross, arms open wide, and they, they bring him up so that all people could see this person dying. What does Caesar do? He goes up the steps so that everybody could see him and he puts his arms out to welcome everybody into his kingdom. Raised, hands apart. And then what happens? It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. I mean, the title's there, right? He is a king, right? Next verse. <clears throat> they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. So the way that Mark is telling this story is supposed to ignite some imagination of things that you're familiar with, especially the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome, right? And what's interesting is that the two people next to him, when Caesar, is the two people he trusts, right? In the Jesus story, there's two rebels next to him, people who've been wronged by the system that they're a part of, and they decided to rebel, and Jesus says, these two are the people that I trust in my life. I mean, what's going on, right? So here's a question for you guys. What is Mark trying to say here, using all this imagery from that culture? First, I think he's saying two things. First thing is that the Romans thought they were mocking a Jewish rebel. They're like, Jesus, you think you're the king? Okay, well here, here's a crown of thorns and oh, here's a robe, oh, mighty king, oh yeah, they get on their knees. And then they, like, they thought they were mocking Jesus, right? But what was actually happening behind the scenes is that they were actually participating in Jesus' coronation ceremony. They had no clue that they were uplifting Jesus as the king of kings, lord of lords. They had no clue. They thought they were just going along with the script and just like trying to make fun of this guy. But in reality, they were seating him on the throne, the throne of the cross. Jesus was being thrown the king of kings and they didn't even know it. Now, the question is, this is what Mark is saying. 
So when he was lifted up as the king of kings, did the people, remember the Caesar story, after he comes up and you know, welcomes everybody into his kingdom, everybody starts recognizing him as son of God, right? How do the people respond to Jesus being crowned the king of kings? Well, let's see what Mark says. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. In the same way, they, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. Next passage. Those crucified, him, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Mark is saying this, Jesus is lifted up as the king of kings and the way that people responded was insults. The God of love was rejected by humanity and all they could do was make fun of him. But remember the Caesar story? There was one more sign that confirmed Caesar's divinity, which was the comet that passed over the sky, some kind of sign from the, from the heavens. By the way, future Caesars, they would stand there and wait for something to show up. <laughs> and sometimes there'll be a bird that flies over. It's like, ah, that's the sign that we're waiting for. It's like history tells us that they will wait for a sign and you know, eventually something will fly. <laughs> so, right? Well, what about Jesus? What sign did he get? Let's see, people looked up to the sky at noon and said, oh my goodness, there's darkness that came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For three hours, it was dark in the middle of the day. And remember the Romans, when they look at the sky and they see a sign, they accept it. They're like, oh my goodness, this must be it. But the Jews who were there, they were like, no, no, we don't trust in what we see in the skies. We trust our scriptures, we trust our temple, we trust our, our, our traditions. Well, is there a sign from God for the Jews? Next verse. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you don't know what this looks like, there, there's writings that said that the thickness of this curtain is about the width of your palm. Okay, that's how thick this thing is. And it goes really, really high. The fact is that this was torn from top to bottom. It's like, it's like an impossible thing to happen. Like they knew this was a sign from God because it tore from top to bottom. And so now the Jews are like, oh man, did we just crucify somebody very important? You know, right? So. While everybody's mocking him, God himself says, no, he is the son of God. Now let's see what the response is. Next verse. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. At the end of this coronation, we have at least one person who says, wait a minute, I think I know what's happening here. I think we just crucified the king of kings, lord of lords. As a centurion, his loyalty is to Caesar, but here he is saying, this carpenter Jewish rabbi guy that we barely know, I think he's the real deal. So the way that Mark is portraying this crucifixion story, the Good Friday story, is basically his way of saying, this, like, use, like, have you guys seen those things that says, like, tell me you're a blank without telling me that you're a blank? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, somebody would say, tell me that you're a pastor without telling me you're a pastor. And I would say, well, um, my weekends are gone, and uh, my family, we don't get to go out on weekends, so we usually go to Disneyland during the week. Like, and you're like, oh, you must be a pastor. You know, like, <laughs> right? This, this is Mark's way of saying, tell me that Jesus is a king without telling me straight up that he's a king. And he uses all these imageries that he, you know, that he could find and say, this is how I'm telling you that he is a king, right? So if this is what Mark is telling us, that without a doubt, like shadow of doubt in your mind that Jesus is the king of kings, Lord of lords, what does that mean for us? Or another way of saying it is this, so what? 
You're like, ooh, I just read a story about how Jesus is the king of kings, ooh, <laughs> right? Does that mean anything, right? Because that was a big question for them. If Jesus really is the king of kings, Lord of lords, what does that mean? Does that change, to, like, does that change Monday? Like does, it, like, does that change my workplace? Does that change my, my relationship with my friends? Like, what, what does that change? Well, keep in mind in that culture, when there's a new king that sits on the throne, the entire kingdom takes on the shape of that king. Right, if you have a conquer, conquering king, he believes in conquest, then the entire town, entire kingdom becomes all about that. The, the blacksmith is no longer making plows and, and gardening tools, they're making weapons, right? They're like, uh, the people who are kids, they're being trained, you know, they're not just learning about school and you know, learning how to read, they're learning how to fight. Like, so whoever the king is, everybody starts to take on that shape. What Mark is implying here is our king, the king of kings, lord of lords, is a god of love, a god of acceptance, a god of forgiveness, a god of generosity. And if you belong to this kingdom, we all have to change the way we are so we match the king that sits on the throne. But then you might be thinking, but wait a minute. Okay, I get that, but didn't he die? Like, <laughs> didn't the king of love, didn't he die? Like, you might be thinking this. The king was murdered by humanity on, God, on Good Friday, right? Like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that, that we should live according to love, but then that God was killed on Friday. And this is why Easter Sunday is so important because Easter Sunday is the celebration that love still reigns. The God who represents love, perfect love, was crucified and killed. But on Sunday, he proved to us that you can't keep love down, that love conquers death, that Jesus, when he rose from the grave triumphantly, he was basically saying, guess who's still on the throne? I am, and I represent the love of God. So what does that mean for us? That means forgiveness still reigns. Reconciliation is still important. It means that generosity is still something that we should be aiming towards. Acts of kindness is something we should all be doing. Peace is a value that we should never give up on because we believe that love is still on the throne. And that's what Easter is all about. Easter is the birth of hope. Amen? All right, let's pray.